Hi, and welcome to another episode of Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name is Kevin Hillier, and today Jeff Apter returns. He was with us in the very first episode of this podcast of Authorised, and uh, he's back today to talk about his latest book, a work on John English. It's a man whose name uh, puts a smile on your face and makes you think of a great song or a great television bit or a, a great bit at the theatre because he transcended a lot of uh, platforms of the, the entertainment industry and we'll find out the story behind all that with Jeff Apter very, very shortly. Behind Dark Eyes, the real story of John English is the, the book and uh, Jeff Apter is coming up in just a tick. A reminder about our wonderful partners here on the Authorised Podcast. It is CSCG. They're the people that you need to talk to if you've got any financial issues whatsoever that you want to talk about, whether it's accounting, whether it's taxation, whether it's superannuation, all tricky fields for us, but not for them. They know what they're talking about. Give them a call on 03 9974 They're always available to have a chat about uh, those situations, accounting, taxation, superannuation, whatever they are. And of course, you can check out the website, cscg.com.au. Let's get to our author. He's back uh, for a return visit. We welcome Jeff Apter. My guest on the Authorised Podcast is the author of a a new book called Behind Dark Eyes, The True Story of John English. We've had him on before and always happy to have a chat to Jeff Apter. G'day, Jeff. How are you? Good to be back, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, well, well, the last time we talked was the George Young book, and there's in the Mm. early part of this book, there's some parallels between uh, the John English uh, early beginnings and the the George Young early beginnings. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The Young family and and John's family, they were, you know, 10-pound bombs, 10-pound scots in the case of the Young. Came over, you know, post-war into Australia, settled in suburbia, and saw the Beatles. <laughs> saw the Beatles at the Sydney Stadium in 1964. It's amazing. I think there's a book to be written about what came out of the audience or who came out of the audience who saw the Beatles when they toured Australia. You know, in Sydney, it was all the Gibb brothers and the Bee Gees came out of that. You know, the Young Brothers, which led to the Easy Beats and ACDC, and, and John English, who at the time was probably considering a career in sports. You know, yep. he was a bit of a gun sportsman, but uh, that and dabbling in rock and roll, and that just as it did to so many other people, just turned his head and went, "That's what I want to do. That looks fantastic." And you know, um, really kickstarted his career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he sort of did bum around a little in the early days, didn't he? Before he sort of found music, and music found him, and then he, you know, his first band uh, I think was called Zenith, and then he was doing Beatles covers and stuff. But it, it kind of took a while for it all to fall into place. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there was a pretty lively you know, covers circuit in Western Sydney at the time. And this is, you know, mid to late 60s. So there was a lot of live music. There was a lot of outlets for live music. But mainly you were play- you were a bit of a human jukebox. You know, you had to be able to play the hits of the day. But what John did, and it's quite funny, there's a really funny story related by Mario Miller, who went on to work with John on Against the Wind. Um, he said that Mario had his own band, and he- it was actually a show not a mile from where I'm sitting right now in Wollongong, and it was 1969. And Mario was in the audience, and, and John had a bit of a name in that circuit at the time, you know, this pretty imposing-looking bloke in front of a band. Yeah. I think at the time he was playing with Sebastian Hardy. And, and John was singing well-known songs like uh, um, The Age of Aquarius and um, uh, Hole in My Shoe, the traffic song, but he was working on the lyrics. Let's <laughs> just say he was, he, was, um, he was tweaking the lyrics a little bit to make it a little bit more X-rated for anybody who actually bothered listening. And uh, Mario tells me that he was listening going, did he just say what I, yep, he did, he did. Yes. Yeah, and looked around to see if anybody else noticed. And, and that was, you know, that was what he was doing. But yeah, it was probably not until Superstar that John really found a very clear direction 
in his musical career. And that almost didn't happen. I mean, that was uh, your classic, your classic kind of almost uh, Keystone Cop type uh, thing, wasn't it? Getting the audition day wrong and uh, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great story. That you know, John's sister, his elder sister Jan, had come back from the UK, and this is probably 1971, with a copy, a vinyl copy of the Superstar cast recording, the original. You know, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice uh, musical. I think um, Murray Head, who went on to have a big hit with One Night in Bangkok, I yep. think he sang the Judas part on that record. And John and his brother Jeremy were just smitten by this record. They just loved it, played it over and over and over again. And John said, if they ever cast this in Australia, if they ever put on this production, I'm going for Judas. He's got all the best songs. He's got the best role. It's a fantastic part. Yep. And when they found out that Harry and Miller was auditioning, um, they were living in Cabramatta, so Cabramatta, the city was a fair hike back in the 1972. Jumped in the car, off they went. And I think it was the, the Phillips Street Theatre. And um, they turned up and it was all locked up. And they're like, oh my God, we've missed it. We've blown it. What have we done? And then they bumped into, I think, you know, the cleaner. And he said, mate, it's tomorrow, not today. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when John turned up, he's sitting in the foyer and there's hundreds of hopefuls there, hundreds of people waiting to audition. And he plonks himself right next to Trevor White. You know, just another hopeful in the crowd. Yeah. It's two of them who would go on to play Jesus and Judas for, you know, 800 performances and launch, you know, great careers for both of them. And just by chance, two expat poms sitting in the foyer, having starting a chat. Oh, what are you auditioning for? Oh, Judas, are you? Jesus, oh, good luck with that, you know. And they found out, you know, they had a, a fondness for Monty Python and the goons while they were just sitting there talking and, you know, struck up a friendship and a working relationship that, you know, really set the Sydney or set the Australian theatrical um, scene on fire. You yeah. know, Superstar was enormous. Yeah, well, it made John a household name, made Trevor White a household name, it made Harry and Miller a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I think um, much more than anybody else involved with the project, for sure. Yeah. But there's so many funny stories about Harry M. You know, yeah, look, he was probably, he was a bit of a hustler, but, you know, all good producers are, aren't oh, they? Oh, absolutely, and, uh, yeah. You know, Harry had chanced upon the Capitol Theatre in Sydney at the time, this is 1972, was was a bit of a wreck. It had been um, really let go. And it's this grand old theatre, you know, that had been used for big shows back around the World War II era. You know, it was a really grand place, but it had just gone to rack and ruin. And Harry thought, right, this is just a place to stay superstar, but it needs a lot of work. So what he actually did um, is before they started, you know, the now legendary Sydney season of superstar, he sent the show around the country to play shows that would generate enough money for him to be able to fix the capital and get yeah. it back to a kind of, you know, workable state. So, you know, he was basically using the cast and the crew of um, Superstar to, to pay his bills so that he could get the capital back into a condition where he could bring in big crowds, and which he did, you know, months and months and months. It was such a huge money spinner. John nailed the uh, the audition to the point where a couple of people who were uh, John Waters were being one of them who was going for the same role went oh well I'm, I, I needn't bother after seeing that but it, yeah, it, it, it was tailor made for him wasn't it It really was you know and he's had such you know not just in 1972 but throughout his career he had such great stage presence and he, he was just such a, a, a you couldn't take your eyes off the guy you know those big dark eyes those big raccoon eyes and he was tall and he had this wild mane of hair, and he had this incredible voice, and he just had a lot of charisma and presence, even back then. You know, you just, once he stepped into that that, that bizarre-looking red and black number that he wore as Judas, <laughs> you just could, could not take your eyes off this guy. And that 
continued, you know, right through all his career, you know, with the Foster Brothers or the Pirates of Penzance or whatever. He just commanded a stage. It was a bit overwhelming for some of his co-stars, of course, but, you know, once they found a way to lock into John's rhythm, I guess, um, it all worked beautifully. And, and, yeah, you're right, Trevor White was there. Marsha Hines came into the production a little later on. The two guys from Air Supply got their start in Superstar. Um, uh, Jim Sharman, who went on to a really, you know, very, um, very famous pr- uh, directing career, and behind the scenes, people who went on to Broadway and won awards. You know, it was uh, it was such a career maker for so many people, superstar. But yes, the story about uh, John Waters is very funny. You know, he he sat next to the producers while um, John was auditioning, and I think he said, "Well." Any role for a disciple? <laughs> he knew he wasn't going to get Judas. <laughs> uh, amazing. I mean, John Paul Young's another one that was that was part John of Paul that. Young, of yeah, course, yeah, who, yeah, who was part of that. Um, the, 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 he then kind of tailed that into a, into a becoming a rock star, which often people in the, the theatre uh, don't become rock stars. That 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 isn't a marriage that was that was sort of happening a lot in those days. No, that's right. And really, John was a bit of a trailblazer in that regard. I mean, he his original, you know, roots as an entertainer was in rock and roll. Yep. But, um, you know, he went back and he was a big pop star during the countdown era too, of course. But, oh, you know, my big introduction to John was in the 80s when I'd seen him on Countdown. Um, you know, I was a Sydney, Western Suburbs kid growing up in Sydney in the 70s. John English was the, the big guy with the dark eyes singing, you know, Hollywood 7 on Countdown. And Sometimes taking over the couch when Molly had a day off, you know. Yep. Sometimes Molly would, sometimes Molly would slide off the couch, but that's another thing. And, uh, <laughs> that's you know, another John book, always, <laughs> That's another book. That's right. But you know, John would always comfortably slide into you know presenting roles. And but then I, my older brother said to me, "You've got to come and see John English and the Foster Brothers." And at that time, I'm what late teens, early twenties, and yeah. I, my friends and I, we're all listening to Bowie and Dylan and Neil Young and Lou Reed. Yeah, we were all too cool for this. But he talked me into it, and I swear it was like being hit by a truck. I was had no idea that he was such a rock and roller. Yeah. You know, this this band played loud and fast and hard, but they were also really funny. John had great, great stage presence. You know, a lot of people wore the leather pants, but John wore them with authority, if that makes sense. Yep. You know what I mean? Leather pants were like... If you can pull off the leather of the pants, you're doing okay in rock and roll. John wore, John wore them for about 30 years. I was amazed. It was such a difference. You know, it was such a different environment to what I'd heard on record. You know, seeing them live was really like being absolutely smacked in the head. It was yeah. great. Yeah. And I saw them repeatedly. But like I say, at the same time, what John had the ability to do was in the middle of, you know, a very serious rock and roll show. He could do stand-up comedy. He could tell a joke. He could... Uh, have a laugh with someone in the band that the, the audience was brought in on, you know, that kind of stuff, which you really didn't see a lot of back in the Oz Rock heyday. It was, you know, it was a pretty serious business back then. The Angels and ACDC and Cold Chisel and Midnight Oil, there wasn't a lot of humour with those bands. But John managed to somehow find this middle ground and always engage the audience. That was another huge thing. You know, he had this great ability to make you walk away from a show thinly as though you'd just been, I don't know, in his lounge room. You know, it was a, a really unique skill that he had. 
He had a connection with the audience that uh, both uh, in when he was doing, you know, uh, things like Superstar and and Pirates and those things. They I, they call it the fourth wall, but he, he had an amazing. It, it was as if you if he if he said something, you actually wanted to answer him because you felt like he was only talking to you. He had a, an amazing connection. Yeah, he did, and the the role the pirate king really was, I think, the the peak of that. You know, you're taking a, a what mid nineteenth century Gilbert and Sullivan light opera. And he turned it into a rock and roll show. Yeah. But, you know, but there's the stories of him, you know, John would swing out on a rope and do all this physical stuff on stage. One night he's, he's swinging over the audience and he spotted his mum, Sheila, in the crowd. It's like, hey, mum, how are you going? And then back to the stage and back to work, you know, and everybody in the crowd is in on the joke. And he'd stop and he'd, you know, have these exchanges with the conductor of the orchestra and he'd talk to the audience and do all these things that you're not supposed to do in the theatre. But he didn't care. He just broke down all those barriers, and uh, you know, and with a really able supporting cast, people like Simon Gallagher and Marina Pryor and and June Bromhill, who I learnt um, she used to take the the male chorus, which was a big part of the pirate show. She used to take them out for long lunches before the matinee, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why the matinee shows were always a little wilder than most because the uh, the male chorus was sozzled because of old June. You know, <laughs> funny things. It, like I say, stuff that wasn't supposed to happen in the theatre, John managed to do that and do it so successfully. You know, when I remember seeing the Pirates and thinking he was pale and made for this role. Yeah. You know, um, there'd, there'd been a big Broadway production uh, with Kevin Klein and then the Ronstadt. You know, they kind of right. added a bit of rock, bit of rock and roll and Hollywood to it, which is sort of what they did here. Um, you know, and Simon Gallagher tells me these wonderful stories of, you know, the first rehearsal, and and he was as amazed as anyone. Firstly, that he was he was cast because Simon at the time was the darling in the midday set. You know, um, he was sort of like the younger version of Jeff Harvey. You know, the playing on the midday show and the Mike Walsh show and all those spots. And here's John, this rock and roller. And he said John walked into uh, the rehearsals with his leather pants, and he's thinking someone was thinking, "Oh, what do we got here?" Uh. And within you know within an hour, they were best friends. You know, they just locked into this groove found this, this really special chemistry. And as Simon described to me, he said, what we under, what I came to understand is that John and I were like chalk and cheese. He was the chalk and I was the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and he said once he accepted that and understood how it worked, it was box office gold for years. It really was. You know, Simon told me a story once writing. He said to John once, John wasn't good with money. And he said to John, do you have any idea how much money these successful shows have generated over the years. And John just shook his head. And Simon said he wrote down the number on a piece of paper and showed it to John, and John's big black eyes lit up. Like, <laughs> my God, really. Because the first Pirates ran for seemingly forever, yeah. and then they did it again 10 years later, and it was just as successful. And yeah. uh, in between that, they did the Mikado, and later on they did Spamalot. You know, they did a lot of great work together. Yeah. I want to talk about their relationship a little further uh, later on, but I, I, the thing about John English is it, it, it's almost four or five careers in in one. It's the it's the the theatre career, it's the rock and roll career, a very an incredibly successful acting career that's part of it as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because you know uh, sometimes John was cast in roles that even he was surprised about. You know, as he, he made this, there was always this running gag with John that early in his acting career, he was always cast as the uh, drug-crazed, axe-murdering hippie in, you know, <laughs> Homicide and Division 4 and just bit parts, 
You know, yeah. maybe one or two episodes. I think he was cast in number 96 as well. I didn't know that was, until I read the book. I was amazed with that because yeah. I, I used to watch number 96. He was Mr. Master in number 96, a drug lord. Kind of, yeah, cult leader or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when he got the call for Against the Wind, well, Against the Wind's producers knew John through all these, particularly the Crawford stuff that he did, Crawford being the big production house in Australia, you know, during that time. And um, he actually rang Mario Miller, who he worked with on the music. He said, they cast me in a role. I have no idea why. <laughs> why they cast me in a serious role? But he just took to it and he lived it. And he, I think he he really brought a lot of humanity to that character. And he just, as his first, not his first serious role, but his first major serious role, yeah. he, he just made it his own. He really, really did. And it, it's almost, in some ways, as far as John's legacy is concerned, it's almost a problem that he was so good in so many different fields. Because you can't pin him down and say John English rock and roll star, yeah. John English TV star, John English you know theatrical star because he was all of those. And you know, as I learned recently, he's not in the Aria Hall of Fame. And I was amazed. I'm thinking he was as good a front man as Doc Neeson or, or Jimmy Barnes or any of these great people that have you know were inducted years ago. Yeah. And I think a part of the problem is the fact that he was so good in different areas that no one thought of him as strictly a musician. You know, they, he was also so many other things, and it was sort of a curse. <laughs> John was so good in so many different fields um, that it was very hard for him to get the proper acknowledgement um, as far as his legacy is concerned for his various works. You know, but uh, you know, people have asked me. Now we refer to them as multitaskers. Yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. But has anybody come up that has similar ability to move between fields? And and lots of people have. I mean. You know, everyone from Angry Anderson to Kate Sobrano to John Farnham have, have appeared on stage in, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar or different other productions or been on TV, but none of them have been able to pull it off in the way that John did. He actually, you know, he was a star in all three areas. Yeah, he was. Is, Absolutely yeah. was. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really uncommon. I mean, you don't see that, well, you see it once in a generation, really. It's all. Yeah, I was going to say it's almost a, a kind of throwback to the vaudeville days of. Uh, of uh, he, he was sort of one of those kind of performers, and I guess that's uh, came up for the liking the likes of you know the Monty Pythons and the Goons and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think back to people. You know, there's a bit of talk about Helen Reddy recently who passed away, and she she could act, she could sing, she could do stage work. She was one of those people that was a bit of a multitasker out of necessity. You know, back in her day, it was. If you couldn't do all those things, you wouldn't make a living. Um, whereas John, it was more, well, he just found out that he was really good in a different, uh, a variety of different fields and, and made a very handsome living in all of them, that's for sure. Uh, Against the Wind took him overseas and, and made him a star in, uh, in a number of uh, countries, but he never really cracked it as, as an international star, which is a question mark I have over, not only over John, but over a lot of Australian performers who never kind of made it overseas. I always wonder about that. Well, it's the investment. I think this is the thing. John, yeah, Against the Wind was huge in Scandinavia. Yep. Um, and But they knew John as a, an actor. John was, you know, Jonathan Garrett from Against the Wind, whereas everybody else, particularly in Australia, of course, he was John English from Countdown, who then went and did this great miniseries. So he went over there to do a concert tour in 1981 with this really great band. Uh, Mario Miller was there and a bunch of other really competent musicians. And they they... But the audiences were expecting him to be sort of a, a TV star who could sing a bit. And they were just 
blown away. They just had no idea how good he was as a musician. And he was playing big venues. He was playing venues that a, a few weeks earlier, people like Bruce Springsteen had been playing. And the crowds were just bowled over, just completely. Oh, my God, he can't. Not only is he a great actor, but he's a great rock and roller as well. And he came back to Australia, and there was a lot of talk about some of his bands said, let's do it, let's go, and, you know, let's go and take on Europe, let's take on the rest of the world. We could really do this. But John, John was comfortable here. Yeah. You know, he had, a, he had a hideaway up on the Hawkesbury River just outside of Sydney. He had four kids, uh, four young kids that he really uh, wanted. One of his, John's biggest challenges was to be the devoted father that he wanted to be and also to be a performer because performing took him away from home a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, he had this hideaway, this kind of, um, as his son described it to me, we had, uh, if the weather was good, we had 20 acres in a creek. And if the weather was bad, we had five acres in a lake, you know. (laughs) And it was just this perfect place, lots of animals, horses, you know. And John could come back from a tour, reconnect with his family and just disappear for a while. And I think the idea of taking on the world would have meant that that, we would have had to give that up. And I don't think he was ready for that. But... He did go back to Sweden a lot. Yep. In fact, when he died in 2016, he'd recently toured there and he was in the process of making a new album with a Swedish band called Sirsis. So, you know, the, um, the, the, I guess the affection for John English and his music um, really continued in Sweden right up to his death. But yeah, look, the classic story of an Australian who gave it all up to succeed overseas is Keith Urban. What Keith Urban understood I've got to give it all up and I've just got to go and start from scratch. If I really want to do this properly, I've got to relocate and I've got to work from the bottom up mm. as I did in Australia. And he did it, but it took him a long time. You know, it took Keith Urban 10 years in America before he really had um, breakout success. And uh, I don't think John English was was ready to make that kind of sacrifice and understandably so. Yeah, absolutely. Paris, the uh, the rock opera was his passion, his obsession, I guess, uh, for the for the latter part of his of his life. And it never quite got done the way he wanted to or the way he the vision in his head was that it would be done and it, how yeah, it would succeed. It was his millstone to, you know, he John's as I said a little earlier, John what John wanted to do was wanted to create a legacy. He wanted to be known for something that he created rather than something that he interpreted someone else's work, yeah. you know, which is where he found his success in Superstar and Pirates of Penzance and all those great records and so on. So he, John was raised, John was a strange kid. Most kids, listen, you know, read Dr. Seuss, but John's bedtime reading when he was a kid with a Greek myth, you know, hey, Dad, read me about Jason and the, Ar- read me yeah. the thing about yeah. Jason and the Argonauts, Helen of Troy, you know, Paris, all this stuff. So he, this stuff was in his DNA. He loved these stories. So he, um, he and a guy called David Mackay, who was a producer he'd worked with, um, went away and wrote this rock opera, Paris. Paris, a love story, it was originally called. And John's plan was his ambition, his vision was huge. He wanted it to be the first Australian-created rock opera to be staged in the West End and Broadway. And he would have said he was going to settle for nothing less. Mm. And he invested a lot of his own money into producing the album because the, the process is you make the album and then you hope that it becomes a hit, and then you hope the Broadway producers get on board and say, we want to produce it. So he spent, I think it was something like $300,000 of his own money. The record cost a million dollars to make. Um, it had big names. I mean, they got in, everyone from Denise Roussos to Harry Nilsson and John Waters was there, the London Symphony Orchestra. And it's 
as David Mackay told me, the LSO doesn't come cheap. <laughs> you know? yeah. And they made this record and they launched it with a big splash at the Opera House and it was all set up, but it just didn't become a hit record. And producers, well, big name producers looked at it, including Cameron McIntosh, who was who was the guy in the 90s who, you know, he staged Les Mis and he staged Cat. You know, if you wanted your big budget production to make the stage, you got it to Cameron McIntosh. Yeah. But he just he, he just didn't see it working. He said it was too expensive. He said it was just a little bit out of touch with what was being done at the time. And it really became a huge problem for John. It, it dented his confidence. It created a, a rift between him and his manager that was never, his manager being one of the investors in Paris, and that was never healed, and eventually his manager had to walk away. Um, his, his manager sold his, I think, $300,000 investment in Paris for $1. You know, all this turmoil happened because John dug in and said, I'm, I'm not going to change it. It is what it is, yeah. and it's got to be produced on a large scale. And it, and then when that failed, he went away and, and wrote a, um, said, oh, okay, well, this one didn't connect. I'm going to go and write another stage production called Busters and Angels. Once again, sunk a lot of his own money into it, took on the role of producer as well as star, and it was a bigger failure. Yeah. It was a huge flop. And, you know, so into the 90s, John descended into this real spiral. He, he'd lost his self-confidence, you know. The, the dent in his ego and self-esteem was massive because up until then, everything he'd done from superstar all the way through to all together now were huge hits. Yep. Everything was a success. And suddenly he had two very large-scale failures on his hands. And, uh, you know, John always John liked to drink to, you know, celebrate, but um, it became a case of drinking to commiserate. And he, you know, like many creative people, the uh, the black dog of depression was always nipping at his heels when in you know darker times, and it really sunk its fangs in during the nineties. And you know, his marriage broke up, um, and it even got to a point where his own kids were telling him he'd become the rock and roll cliche uh, yeah. that he used to laugh about. You know, tough, tough stuff that was happening in his life. And you know, you look at it now and think, oh god, he should have made different decisions, but. You know, what he was trying to do was create a legacy, to create work that he was going to be renowned for. And uh, you can understand on a creative level what he was trying to do, but it was, um, yeah, it was a big, the the 90s was just a very, very tough time for John. Jeff, you're obviously a fan. It must be hard to write uh, of someone's demise and, and the, you know, how rapidly it it happened for John. Yeah, yeah, it is. It was tough. Um, But just strictly on a, a, you know, a human level, um, writing about someone you know, personal and and uh, psychological demise, um, which is really, um, in the the upside of the story though with John, of course, is that in very late stages of his career, there was a comeback, there was a renaissance. You know, he did a thing called the Rock Show, which yep. really um, re- reminded people what a great performer and singer he was. Um, but it took a long time to get there, and there was a very dark period from you know early nineties through to probably the last seven or eight years of his life. You know, it was a, it was a long, hard stretch. He did. Um, I mentioned Spam a lot earlier, which was his last <laughs> uh, performance with you know Simon Gallagher because they you know they love Monty Python and this show was a, had been a big hit overseas. But Simon said to me, I, I you know it was tough. John was drinking too much. I had to help him around the stage. And when the opportunity came to take it on the road, Simon, who was you know a very close personal friend of John, respected and loved the guy deeply. He had to tell the producers. I can't do it. I can't be John's nurse. We can't go and tour and find ourselves in a city where the performance can't go on because, you know, John's drunk. You know, he said, 
I just can't bear that responsibility. And, and you know, Simon had never had those kind of problems. He had no idea how to deal with them. So it was, um, it was really heavy going. Yeah, and, and you know, as a as a writer, it was um, there were passages there where I, I certainly had to take a deep breath, and you know, I knew where the story was leading, and it was it was it was hard going. But you know, I was working with his family in a really in a really good and positive way. They were hands off, but they were very helpful when it came to connecting me with people. And then when I would send them passages of the book to read for fact checking and so on, I'd also put a little caveat and say. This bit's going to be tough to read. Yeah. You know, just let me know. And they were always supportive. They was like, look, John had his demons, you know, and, and I think it's important that people know about that because it's part of the, the, the you know, this wild ride of his life that he that he undertook, you know. It would be it would be misleading not to document that. So it was really, really positive and, and very supportive on their part because, you know, I've worked on this Ghost Rider and a bunch of other kind of collaborative projects where Sometimes things get a little watered down. Yeah. Sometimes people aren't quite prepared to tell the full story. Whereas with John and his family, it was they, 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 the the sort of guiding light was: we want you to write the kind of book that John would have written if he was still alive. Yep. And they, you know, and as far as they're concerned, this is that book. So you know, that was a really great stamp of of approval and authority, and that really helped me get through it. Because you know, yeah, it was a heavy emotional experience, particularly those last. 15 years, documenting those last 15 years or so of John's life was, um, as, it was as difficult as a writer as it was for the people who were telling their story. Yeah, I'll bet. You know? I'll bet. And they experienced, they experienced it firsthand. I didn't, you know, so there were some people, and in fact, uh, honestly, there were some people um, involved with John who weren't quite ready to tell their story yet. Yeah. You know, there's a, a lot of people there who'd worked with John for 30 years and, and said to me, we keep expecting the phone to ring, <laughs> you know, even five years after his death, you know. Because it would happen every year. Right, we're back on the road. We're off for another three months. You yeah. know, it was not just their livelihood, but it was their their way of life. You know, for so long working with John, and suddenly he was gone, and and he was such a he seemed such a bulletproof kind of character yeah. too. Very you know, true. He, he was larger than life. He was indestructible, and to see him fade away, and a lot of people saw this very at very close hand. It was um. Yeah, it was tough going, and it, it's still, you know, he's still cast a very large shadow over a lot of people's lives today. I think you've captured his uh, his 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 aura, uh, his vulnerability, his sense of humour. I think you've captured everything uh, that, uh, that you know, I've, and I met him a, a number of times. I think you captured all that in the book. It's a terrific read. Well done. Uh, again, uh, another really good read about uh, a, a, a really significant Australian uh, entertainment force. Uh, it's a pleasure. And, yeah, like I say, I'm, I'm you know, Every time I get to do one of these projects, it's just a real honour to write about people who left such an impact on my life too, Kevin. You know, it's uh, it's it's sort of as a writer, it's uh, living the dream or living the life that I knew I don't have the constitution for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fair enough too. Who uh, who's next on the drawing board? I, I've got to. I'm, you're not an Australian music writer unless you've had a shot at the Bond Scott story. Ah. So, uh, that's next on my list. And, and I'm also, I mentioned Keith before, I'm also looking at revisiting a book I wrote about 10 years ago because um, so much has happened to him over the last 10 years or so. I think it's time to update that story. So, yeah, a couple more Australian stories in the works. 
Well, thanks to Jeff, and we look forward to that Bond Scott book coming up in the uh, in the future. Behind Dark Eyes, the real story of John English is uh, Jeff's book that we've talked to him about this time. Uh, thoroughly recommend it. Great read. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it to the point you can really enjoy a story about someone who I had a bit to do with over the years in terms of interviewing on the radio and getting to know him a little bit uh, and really enjoyed his company. And uh, to read about the final days was, was sad. Uh, but to read about uh, the good days was terrific. So I, I reckon you'll enjoy the book if you uh, get a hold of it. Behind Dark Eyes by Jeff Apter. Our thanks to CSCG. Don't forget they are the people to deal with. They're real people. They know what they're talking about when it comes to finance. And your financial situation will look a lot rosier if you talk to them. Give them a call on 03 or jump on the website. See the people that you're dealing with, cscg.com.au. Till the next time, read a book. I'm going to, and I'll bring you the author of that book in the next episode of Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. <laughs>